Welcome to the Bound Cause, where we have found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael Mann behind the machine, and to my right is Sebastian, the bookkeeper. I'm totally messing up all my hand motions. I pointed point at me for Jesus Christ, and then <laughs> whatever. Sorry, I'm not Jesus Christ. I'm his loyal servant. So, today's episode, Sebastian, how are you, first of all? I am doing great. It's earlier than usual. It is earlier than usual. You can see the sun is like shining. God's favor is shining behind us. We had a great episode last time with some Mormon missionaries. My great, I mean, it's performing really well, um, which is great to, to see and hear. So, uh, we do this podcast for fun and for the edification of the saints out there, all 100 of them that watch. So glad to see 200 people being edified at least. Yeah. Or entertained at least. Or at least entertained. It was a good one. And succinct, you know, pretty rare for us. You know, it was only an hour, a little plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, today's episode. And apologies, I am clearly all over the wall. My new baby was really terrible this weekend so i might be a little less sharp than normal but thankfully i've got sebastian here who's extra sharp for the both of us today's episode is a theodore topic that sebastian picked out and then theater's like peace so um i appreciate it because then we get to take it wherever we want so like theodore sometimes has extremely long topic names that like don't make any sense to us we're like what were you thinking here theodore um this one i think we got the spirit of it what would you call the spirit of this episode as you picked it out the spirit of original sin and baptism which on the surface to me i read it and i was like what like how is that even related but now i realize okay they are related it's pretty obviously actually let's get into it so let's do some definitions and tell you why original sin and baptism are related um, to do that we should define both topics first and you'd think these would be really basic christian theology and they are but because the devil's always attacking the truth there's a lot of different opinions about these and and like subtle opinions about these so let's define firstly original sin what is it Sebastian? sure <clears throat> we're going over this because not everyone out there believes in original sin protestants some protestants don't believe in it i would encourage them to start doing so because we will argue it is a biblical position yeah and uh, some eastern orthodox i actually they say they do believe it, they just phrase it differently because you know they speak greek it's greek to us so yeah I don't really know if I believe them when they say that, but sure. Yeah. I will use the Roman Catechism, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which has a very funny acronym after Michael pointed it out. You'll figure it out. CC. Yeah, I was going to say, you can figure it out on their own and see what comes out. And the reason I use the Catechism is because it was originally, the theory of original sin was developed by Augustine, who lived in the early 300s, 400s. Well, we should say it was coined by Augustine. I think any any biblical principle was probably thought of beforehand because it's written by the apostles originally. So it was coined and made popular by St. Augustine. Yes. Oh, you say it so interestingly. Okay. <clears throat> In short, from the Catechism, part one, by his sin, Adam, as the first man, lost the original holiness and justice he had received from God, not only for himself, but for all human beings. Adam and Eve transmitted to their descendants human nature wounded by their own first sin and hence deprived of original holiness and justice. This deprivation is called original sin. Now, Simple. We, we normally don't agree with Catholics on a lot of different things, especially like weird details around sin and justification. But Sebastian reads it, like he said, because... From St. Augustine, who we mostly agree with on, on most things, and in this one, it's pretty much exactly aligned where we are. And what you should notice is that 
some people colloquially define original sin differently than that official definition of original sin, and I would say especially Roman Catholics. So kind of ironic that their catechism has such a tight definition of it, whereas a lot of Roman Catholics and others don't have such a tight definition. Also, the first thing that I notice with that catechism definition, and is ours too, is that original sin is really just the passing on of a sinful nature mm-hmm. to, to Adam's offspring. It's not culpability for Adam's sin. So some would say, and even Jews, I think, or others like kind of liberal people will point out that there are laws in God's law and Leviticus and Deuteronomy that say that the sins of the father shall not be visited on the son. And then they'll say this rebukes original sin because you're saying Adam's sin is visited on his son. Like you're charging um, the son for his father's sin, which is against God's law. Like why would God do that to people? And we would say that it's not that Adam sinned and therefore I have to die. Like Adam paid for his own sin. He died, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, he ate his own sin fruit. Um, but the nature, Adam's nature changed into one that was deprived. And so every single one of his children, um, and Eve, of course, was also deprived, um, every single one of their children then was unable to not sin. They all had a sinful nature. So you pay for your own sins, but you inherit your sinful nature from Adam. Exactly, exactly. So, in other words, God doesn't punish us or give us original sin for eating from the tree because I wasn't present there thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. We have inherited the fallen nature of Adam. That's really what it's trying to say by original sin. Yeah, and I'll say that one Eastern Orthodox guy that we responded to one time, Eric Alharb, he had like a this this his big stick in the mud because he said that we're still humans and therefore our natures didn't change because we didn't go from being non-humans to humans or humans to non-humans like we're still humans um okay i mean insert whatever word you want for nature that helps you sleep at night but like we became we went from being um good natured people who sorry i'm gonna keep using the word because it's what i know but uh good intention people people with with clean hearts and clean minds to people with perverted hearts and perverted minds even if they're not totally perverted are you like they're not every bad thing you could possibly think of. They they were not inclined towards good. They were inclined towards evil. Mm-hmm. That's also critical. Inclination, very important. I saw a video from a Thomistic Institute with all this stuff going on. Thomas Aquinas will not get into that. But this Catholic man said said it very clearly, very well. I liked his, his interpretation of it. It's rather not that we're as evil, as twisted as we could be. But your inclination has changed from serving God to now looking inwards, which wasn't right. the, I mean, the design for human. Yes, God plans all of history, but the purpose of humans was at first to serve Him and serve Him only. And then through sin, we chose our own passions, Adam and Eve, and ourselves. We choose our own passions and desires over God. That's how our nature has changed. Now, here at the Found Cause, and any time that you are doing your own apologetics and building theology, you do not just want to take the words of two right. podcasters or St. Augustine or anybody with special hats. You have to go back to the Word of God. And if the Bible doesn't say something about it, you really shouldn't hold to it very strongly, at least, um, if, if at all. Uh, but thankfully, <laughs> Scripture does say this is all Scripture-based. Sebastian, mm-hmm. why don't you read out of Romans 5? We'd say this is the Bible's most succinct description of original sin. Right. And as I do this, please keep in mind, for anyone that still says, oh, original sin clearly was just invented by St. Augustine. Well, I mean, wouldn't you, if you hold to the Trinity, just understand the word original sin wasn't used in the Bible. Like the word itself wasn't used. 
same with the word Trinity, but yet from the Bible, we can get the teaching and the idea of the Trinity. Right. And also the idea of original sin, essentially. Yep. Just know if there's someone who's still on the fence about this. So this is from Romans 5, verse 12, and then going onwards. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow the many nor can the gift of god be compared with the result of one man's sin the judgment follow one sin and brought condemnation but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification for if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man how much more Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And I'll leave it there. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'll say in verse 19, just a tiny bit further, it says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also the obedience of one man made many righteous. Very yeah. succinct version of the gospel, but also notice that it says the many were made sinners. So they're they're natures were changed from non-sinners to sinners, whatever you're going to call the word nature. Um, that is what happened in original sin. So they're not responsible for Adam's sin, but they are killed by Adam's sin because they're, they become sinners themselves. And as this man from the Thomistic Institute pointed out, actually, he says that Paul is talking about the gospel and he associates it directly with the fall. Right. Like there, there really couldn't be a gospel without the, in, the insertion of sin into humanity. So they're, they are dependent they are dependent on one another. Yeah, and if you think it is unfair that you have been charged with sin because of Adam, right? You you were cursed because of Adam's sin and you're like, "Oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't get the fair shot to choose that. I just was born a sinner." Um, know that it's the exact same logic that makes you righteous, right? Like Paul directly compares them several times here. He says, "For just as through the disobedience of one man you were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man you were made righteous." Meaning, and this is like critical to the gospel and the differences we have um, with Roman Catholics and other gospel deniers on the power of the gospel. It's one man, Jesus's obedience that makes us righteous. It's not our obedience that makes us righteous. We should obey and it's that we would show our changed natures when we do, but it's only through Jesus Christ that we were made righteous, not by our works and Jesus Christ. Just like it wasn't our bad works and Adam that made us sinners. We were sinners from the moment we were born, um, which is something even King David quotes, he says, wasn't I conceived in inequity? Wasn't I see, conceived in sin? Yeah, from Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth, mm -hmm. sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you decide faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So we would also hold, um, just to keep compounding on original sin as a concept, because of that line from King David and this line um, from Romans 5 and, and elsewhere, when sin is described, it does not exclude children. So there are many who hold to ages of accountability, including Baptists, definitely Roman Catholics, and others who would hold that 
children before they are able to decide good and evil aren't culpable for the sins they do. And to some extent, we know that um, at the very beginning of this text you just read from Romans 5, that anyone who was before the law is given, the sin is not charged to their account. But that does not mean that they won't die and go to hell. Um, because as Paul says, he says in 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. Meaning, just because somebody does not know that they're sinning does not mean that they won't suffer the punishment of hell because they are still in equity. They, they still are not good enough to go to heaven. They are sinful by nature. They are sinners, even if they aren't actually charged with the sin because they don't know the law. So it's like kind of half right that there's an age of accountability as far as like when the sin really starts to be charged against them because they don't know better. But it doesn't save them to be under the age of accountability. Right, right. And as we talked about in another episode, if you really want to hold to the belief that babies, all babies will be in heaven, you have to be a Calvinist because in Calvinism, your belief isn't what saves you. It is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ alone mm -hmm. that saves you. And the fact that you believe and love Jesus is a product, a consequence, a result of that imputed righteousness of Jesus. So Jesus doesn't save you because, oh, Michael believes in me. I will save him. No, Jesus saves you, as he talks in Ephesians, predestined from the before the foundations of the earth. And therefore, something clicks in Michael's head, spirit, soul, whatever you want to call it. Say, oh, I love you, Jesus. Mm -hmm. If you want to say old babies end up in heaven, you have to be a Calvinist to be consistent with the Bible, of course. Yes. So I think that pretty much sums up our position on original sin and then all the little caveats to it. Give another verse from 1 Corinthians is relevant. Sure. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Meaning, death reigned through Adam, like we read in Romans, and Christ is the solution. He is the uh, salvation who makes us alive. Right. And if you remember, <laughs> just to show you where these things are quoted, we had a conversation with that guy, the universalist, Peter Hyatt, and he pointed this to say that just like everybody dies in Adam's sin, so everybody, including sinners, will be like non-believing, non-elect, um, will be made alive with Christ. But you'll notice it immediately says, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, and after those who are Christ, that is coming. So the ordering here is important because... Uh, being made alive in Christ and being his first fruits is being in heaven and the rest of those who are made alive are not made alive in Christ they they end up going to hell as is described many a times in scripture so don't get it twisted there but this does show that all die in Adam and anybody who is going to live lives in Christ mm -hmm. and we all sin we all sin the wages of sin is death if you meet someone who is immortal running around probably hasn't <laughs> sinned but all humans will die and the only way from death to get from death to life as we get over and over again from the new testament and even the old is through the atonement of god yeah which is another way um just to, to slam dunk it we know that babies have sinful natures is that they die and um 
I think there are many weird understandings of how sin affects the body, but we would generally say that those who do not have a sinful nature will not die, they're immortal. And when Adam and Eve tasted of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, they became sinful by nature, and therefore all of our descendants, we are not immortal anymore, as evidenced by all of us dying, because of our sinful nature. Whereas someone like Jesus Christ, when he came and incarnated in flesh, he would not have died. He gave himself up to die. He would have lived forever. So... That's generally how we apply it. So babies die, therefore they had a simple nature. Um, again, with, Christ, with Sebastian's caveat that Christ can save any he chooses, including babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that establishes original sin. I think there are some controversies on that, but less than our next topic, because the astute listener might be questioning, okay, I got it, original sin delivered. How does that connect to baptism? Uh, and maybe that's like a naive Protestant position of mine, because that's why immediately it was like, how does that connect to baptism? But um, historically, throughout the ages, they have been super connected because baptism um, was often connected with clearing away your original sin or somehow cleaning your sins. And Sebastian, you have much more historical context than I do on this one. Yes, yes. For a very long time, and even up to the Reformation, which with friends like John Calvin and Luther, they would have affirmed that in order to be saved, you must be baptized. Mm-hmm. And to that, in the modern day Protestants, Baptists, particularly in the US, you might be scratching your head. Why would anyone ever say that? And it has a long history. There is a passage that's very often quoted from the New Testament. So maybe that's a good place to start for our discussion. And then we, I can talk about how many people have either interpreted this or what led to become a very firm tradition in Christianity. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll briefly just give the Baptist position because it's so short. (laughs) The Baptist position, so what I grew up with is, and what I still am, is that baptism, being immersed in water, is a symbol of when you come to Christ and that Christ commands that you do it when you come to Christ. But it doesn't have any magical powers. It does not, like, suddenly regenerate you. It doesn't do anything. It's just a, a symbol, a commanded symbol of Christ to show that you're a Christian now, that you're leaving the old self behind, and now's the new. That's that's what baptism is. Um, there is a line from John 3 that others, and, and there are commands from Christ. He says, you know, go forth and baptize the believers in my name or repent, believe, and be baptized. I mean, there's there's places in the Bible that mm-hmm. it's right after repenting and believing in the gospel. So people think it's all part of the, the gospel is to be baptized. And we do not deny that baptism is part of becoming a Christian, but we don't believe that you need to be baptized, like logistically to be saved, i.e. the thief on the cross was not baptized. And there will be many people in heaven, we believe, that didn't get baptized, whether because they didn't know any better, they thought they had been, but they hadn't been, um, or they didn't get a chance to before they were martyred or whatever else. And so, all and I think most Christians, even those who believe in infant baptism and others, would also say that. So when they point to these verses, I, they like, they're not consistent. Uh, but John 3, um, Nicodemus is talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, I mean, you have to be born again, right, to be saved. And so you do. And then Nicodemus says, how can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Ha, ha, ha. Can't go back up. And then Jesus answers him, very well, truly I tell you, uh, very truly I tell you, gosh, I'm not reading right. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it goes and for, or from where it's going. So is everyone born of the spirit. And 
Nicodemus is still like, what the heck? And <laughs> Jesus keeps going, um, but nothing on baptism. So people will point to this and say, uh, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the spirit. And I go, see, baptism and the, of water, like the physical baptism, and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you need both. And if you aren't baptized, born of water, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do you have any comments on this before I just rant on it? Uh, sure. And then Jesus does go on. The flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. And you see the emphasis on the spirit, not so, not so much the water itself. I would actually say that the emphasis of baptism is to show that you truly have been moved by the spirit of God to turn your life away. The baptism is a symbol of washing, of cleansing. You have been cleansed by the blood of Christ or the future blood of Christ or his atonement in this case. And you are effectively carrying out your renewal by being submerged in water, which symbolizes this renewal. Yeah, I think that um, those who equate this to baptism are missing a gigantic explanation and, and symbolism for baptism. The reason you are baptized in water is because you were born in water. We all know about the bag of waters, that you're born with a big gush of water out of your mother's womb. It's considered water. You're born out of the waters. You're, you were raised in waters. The womb is full of water. Um, when Jesus is talking about being born of water, I strongly believe he's not, this isn't even a conversation about baptism. It's a conversation about being born. And so he says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit, emphasis on and the spirit. And then his very next line is flesh gives birth to flesh, meaning the, water, the born of water part is talking about being regular born, like straight out of your mom's womb. And the spirit is the second birth. So the emphasis here is not water and the spirit. It's not the combo. It's that you have to be born regular, like a regular person, you're born out of water. And then of the spirit. So I do not believe this is referencing baptism at all. And baptism is a symbol of the physical birth because you're born out of water. And so you get dunked back into water again and then taken out. So it's like a physical rebirth, just like you were born out of your mom's womb that's why you're baptized in water is because you're born out of water when you're a baby. Anyways, I digress, but this, I really do not think this is about <laughs> baptism and it baffles me how many Protestants quote this to talk about baptism. And on that note, bap uh, baptism, baptizing uh, is to submerge. That's literally what the word means. Yes. And we Just. have recipes about pickles to prove it. And there are a lot of debate there on the Greek word about tismo or whatever. Um, and yes, you baptize pickles when you pickle them uh, in some ancient recipe. And so, yes, we know that baptismo means fully submerged in water, um, not sprinkler or whatever else. Not that I really care because I think anybody knows that baptism isn't sprinkling. And it's just a, it's just a, you know, we do it out of necessity. If you're going to baptize a baby, you have to sprinkle them in the head. Um, but yeah, of course it's submersion. That's oh, not I, the Eastern Orthodox. They go hardcore in the name of the father. Son yeah, and the, the Holy Spirit. They did triple dunk. Yeah, with the baby. That's pretty intense to see. I mean, <laughs> good seen, on them. I've seen Protestants like uh, full dunk babies too, and they like they like stream them through the water so that it doesn't go up their <laughs> nose. Anyways, so that's hardcore. And whatever. But you may say, maybe that doesn't talk about baptism, Michael. But what about First Peter three? As you will see here, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And in this water, 
And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. See? Look, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Saves you, Michael. Saves you. Well, do you remember, it's one of our most popular episodes right now, is our reaction to uh, Lutheran satire. <laughs> and like... At least four irate commenters, and you know, there's a lot of comments in that video. So they also quote John three, yeah, yeah. They're they like spaz. There's a lot of the quote John three, and then people who quote this first Peter, and they're like, baptism saves. When you say that it doesn't save, you're directly refuting scripture. Um, Once again, another one that kind of baffles me, but I guess it doesn't really, because if you have the tradition that baptism saves you in a regenerative sense. Then you just control up in the Bible and find baptism with Savior someplace, and then there it is, pro- point proven. But if you read this whole section, um, I don't know how you'd come away with it thinking that baptism like saves you in a salvation sense, because it says this water symbolizes the baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. So there's Peter immediately like hyphenated immediately at least in my english translation here saying not the physical baptism not the removal of dirt from the body just the pledge of the clear conscience meaning the baptism is part of you coming to christ normally so this is just the normative symbol for when you come to christ but peter makes an emphasis to say it's not the actual act of baptism though you should do that i mean he's not denying you should do that but it's just what baptism symbolizes which is the pledge of a clear conscience towards god so that is what baptism is in a stand-in for and peter is just being poetic here um in saying that he's using baptism as a stand-in for turning to christ repentance that's all and, and again he emphasizes it again the very next line it says it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, it's not not the actual baptism that's saving you. It's, it's just a stand-in for your repentance. Um, and again, the repentance isn't even what saves you. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that does. So again, definitely not talking about baptism, regenerating you or any of the sort. He makes clear emphasis to say not the, the baptism, really. Not the removal of the dirt, but the pledge, the thing that comes with baptism. Yeah, and it's another embarrassing one. Like John 3 and 1 Peter 3 are just confusingly not about baptism saving you that it seems so odd that people quote them all the time. But you know why they do is because there's nowhere else in the Bible that talks about baptism saving you or describes it in any way connected to salvation except for the calls that have it within, you know, repent, believe, and be baptized. And we have the same calls. We just don't believe that baptism is necessary in that order. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a long tradition from this. And I would say before we start discussing it about our Protestant friends, like Presbyterians and Lutherans that hold on to this belief mm-hmm. and, you know, their their intricacies, or especially, specifically for Presbyterians, I will read from the Catholic Catechism in their belief, and this will tie it all again with why we started with original sin and why baptism has been such a controversial topic, even with Protestant friends. From the Catechism, I believe this is part two, paragraph uh, 1263. By baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original sin and all personal sins, as well as the punishment for sin. In those who have been reborn, nothing remains that would impede their entry into the kingdom of God. Neither Adam's sin, nor personal sin, nor the consequences of sin, the gravest of which is separation from God. 
Yet certain temporal consequences of sin remain in the baptized, such as suffering, illness, death, and such fatality, frailties inherent in life as weaknesses of character and so on, as well as an inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence, or metaphorically, the tinder for sin. Since con concupiscence, my goodness, is left for us to wrestle with, it cannot harm those who do not consent but manfully resist it by the grace of Jesus Christ. So, and again, baptism not only purifies from all sins, but also makes the neophyte a new creature, an adopted son of God, who has become a partaker of the divine nature, member of Christ, and co-heir with him in a temple of the Holy Spirit. Any reactions, Michael? I can see you took off your glasses. Yeah, I mean, it's also, it's, I'm getting super glare off the screen, so try not to. Um, on one hand, if you take the catechism extremely poetically on like one line or something like that i could agree in that if by baptism you mean what peter means in that like it's the full gospel like baptism is just a word to stand in for the full repentance and all the belief that comes with baptism then i you know i guess so right like yeah we are once we have accepted christ and repent and believe um which can come with baptism right it should come with baptism uh you are no longer accounted any sins against you. And yes, you still have the temporal evidences of sin and um, you will still sin because of the flesh. So all that is still there. Um, but I know that's not what they mean by it because what they really mean by this whole statement here is that the physical act temporarily saves you, i.e. like all the sins you've done in the past and now currently up to the current time you're being dunked are now paid for. Um, but any sins you do afterwards you're you're liable for so it's like a temporary once in a lifetime cleansing which is nowhere in the bible like we quoted you the two problem passages here the quote-unquote problem passages about baptism saving you those that's it like there's there's not ones we're not showing you that are like super obvious on how baptism is washing away sins there's a there's a quote also from peter about like being washed from sin and people be like baptism and <laughs> what <laughs> You washed clean by blood, by Christ. Like, that's just an analogy for being clean from sin. It has nothing to do with baptism. I mean, you know, baptism is a good analogy. Like, they're all analogies. It's not, that's not a reference to baptism. Baptism is a reference to you being washed from sin. It's like the reverse of it. So, um, I mean to say, there's not something we're missing from the Bible there. It's total injection. And it's not just the Roman Catholics who have that kind of belief. But it's insane um, to think that you are paid for because of the physical act of baptism. But then, like, as soon as you sin again you're dirty again and you can't be double dunked because you know you can't be double dunked you can't just keep getting baptized so uh they don't you get like one one clear shot it's like a rpg where you get one um free wipe of your skill tree and then never again and it's said um it's not the bible yeah and that's why by the time of constantine people waited until their deathbed to be baptized because constantine himself did uh -huh. they thought it was really powerful and they like, it's only one shot that I get at yeah, this, so I need to wait. get my life in order before. <laughs> yeah, really against the true spirit of baptism, isn't it? Because the true spirit of baptism is supposed yeah. to be like a brave declaration of your faith, like now I've done it. But instead they're like a, like a cowardly secret confession of faith on your deathbed so that it's only you and your priest and Jesus that sees it while you slowly die. I mean, that's really not what baptism is for. Right. I have to say it's unfortunately a development, as we were talking about before this episode, that slowly over time, the strong emphasis on the Eucharist would eventually 
by the year 1215 would become it's like oh this is literally the body of jesus christ mm -hmm. in the bread and the wine whereas we have shown in other episodes it took a thousand years to develop it wasn't until the 700 mid 700s where there was this big debate about jesus truly being present in the eucharist or is it just a metaphor mm -hmm. to the death of jesus likewise we would say that baptism though earlier on took a much stronger symbol than the sacraments of right. of the lord's supper i'll quote from Gottschalk just to show that it's been around and even with people that you're like oh you're so close this is the feeling i got Gottschalk, near 800 700 late 700s more or less 800 we agree on him devil predestination god god elects we don't elect ourselves. Mm -hmm. God elects and saves and atones perfectly. That doesn't fail to save from sins again. Amen. Great guy, Gottschalk. He got this wrong, though, from a long tradition of the church. Redemption that takes place in baptism is common to the elect and the reprobate. Both are completely redeemed from past sins. But that redemption that is brought about by the grace of baptism, which is common to the elect and the reprobate, washes away past sins but does not redeem from future sins. And one more I have a quote. He, he, Jesus, clearly did not redeem while hanging on the cross any crime of any reprobate, even if baptized, however small and insignificant a crime that any of them commit after the redemption of baptism, although he certainly redeemed all the sins of all the elect. So close. Such a weird position, whatever. It, it tells you the tradition he was coming out of. And no that um, you have a section from the Didache as well, but uh, the Didache is a very early teaching from the church, so way earlier than Gottschalk, um, it's in the 70 AD-ish range, and the traditions of the church weren't originally this weird view of baptism, it comes later, like 300 years later. And so although it has been a strong tradition of the church for like 1500 years plus, um, that does not mean that it is the original tradition, as the Didache would show, baptism was not always considered some grand remission of sins, and certainly it was always some sort of dunking, and also um, of adults. So for all those who argue that it's a sprinkling of kids and does remit sins, it's like triple opposite, triple wrong, sorry. <laughs> Try again. So that's actually the main issue that we want to get to, because we said that the belief that baptism has the power to wash away, literally wash away, all your past sins, but you can still, like Gottschall would say, sin some more and end up in hell. Which is very strange, but you know, okay. Do, to each their own, I suppose. He was a man of his time. Mm -hmm, man of his time. The next step to that was, we should baptize our children to make sure that they're saved. Yeah, and you know, well, first go with the Didache to prove that this is not the tradition of the church, and then we'll talk yes, about that. Yes, many will argue, yes, that is also the tradition that children was, would be baptized mm -hmm. again, Talked about from Constantine, people wait until they're late in life to not miss their only shot at getting their sins washed. Mm -hmm. Eventually, people start picking up and say, oh, we should baptize babies too. Okay, this is from the Didache, written around 90, 80, 90, 80, more or less, give or take. Uh, concise teaching of the apostles. Concerning baptism, baptize this way. First, go over all these things that have already been said, meaning the teachings of Jesus, the gospel, all of that. Then baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize in running water. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some other water. Baptize in cold water. But if you don't have cold water, use warm water. 
If you do not have a place with water, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one baptizing and the one to be baptized, as well as anyone else who is able, should fast for one or two days before baptism. What do you make of that? Well, not only do you get the admission for sprinklings, like if you need to, emergency, which shows, I think, all the more our view about In the desert, yeah. And that it's that it's symbolic. It's not actually the act that, that does anything magical. Um, the norm would be to be dunked, apparently in running water, um, which is definitely not how most people do these that days. That would be a river. Yeah, a river or cold lake or they said warm water if you can't get the other two and then if you don't have any water you can sprinkle uh, but not only that you're supposed to um, fast you're supposed to rebuke the devil which we didn't even get into but you're supposed to turn to the left and rebuke the devil and turn to the right and rebuke the world or something like that that's more coptic tradition but some some they do that. yeah well i think it's in the dedicate isn't it not not in the dedicate oh, no okay. from monastics um then i digress but these are things that a baby would not, could not do. And they show you that uh, they weren't baptizing babies back then. Yeah. We can bring Shepard in right now and ask him to fast for two days and rebuke the devil and spit over his left shoulder. So let's see how that goes. Uh, he probably spit before. He did that one early. <laughs> uh, the argument from those who baptize babies is that from the very get-go, Jews and Christians, you know, the newbies to the gospel were, of course, they were baptizing their babies because they circumcised their kids. And so they'd immediately recognize that baptism was the new circumcision and that they would have baptized their whole household. So when you have um, instances of new Christians coming to faith and it says them and their whole household was baptized, it must have included little babies who couldn't consent. Um, otherwise, the Bible would have made a big deal about it. Um, except to say, I mean, I could rant on that for days, and this really isn't the episode to be ranting on covenant theology, but covenant theology is wrong, period, end of story. Um, it totally misunderstands the Old Testament and how it applies, and therefore uh, misunderstands the New Testament. It was built by John Calvin to to justify infant baptism. That was the, the reason it was built. So the whole thing is constructed to try to justify infant baptism. It is not right. It's not the actual view of the covenants, the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, only applied to the faithful, never applied to the unfaithful. The unfaithful were cursed because of the old covenant. They weren't inside the old covenant. So just in that same way, only the righteous have the new covenant applied to them. It does not also apply to the unrighteous, whether they're babies or not. Um, that's that's my gist on there. But just to prove to you again that we, we quoted the Didache, you have the history, people were not dunking babies. And when they started to, it was noticed and condemned. Sebastian has a quote yes. from Tertullian, early church father, on it. From the 200s, yes. According to, this is a, um, on baptism, uh, year 200, 206. According to everyone's condition and disposition, and also his age, the delaying of baptism is more profitable, especially in the case of little children. For why is it necessary, if baptism itself is not necessary, that the sponsors should be thrust into danger? For they may either fail of their promise by death, or they may be mistaken by a child's proving of wicked disposition. They that understand the weight of baptism will rather dread the receiving of it than the delaying of it. An entire faith is secure of salvation. In other words, there were people who were sponsors, the parents, speaking on behalf of the child. We dedicate, he, I'm using, I'm using, I'm using, because many Baptists also, they dedicate their children to, to Christ. They're dedicating or baptizing them. What are you doing? You're, he, they're truly saying you're actually putting yourself on the line. You're making a promise on behalf of someone else that you don't even know if it could be carried out. The promise being a faithful 
the child will be a faithful Christian, you shouldn't be making that promise before God because you don't know if the child is going to be a Christian or a son of perdition. Right. So don't do it. It says it's better to delay it than because it's not necessary. He even says, why is it necessary to do this if baptism itself is not necessary? Right. <laughs> so that's that's the problem. And and I like Doug Wilson. There are a lot of good things from Doug Wilson. Obviously, he has his problems. Every teacher has his problems. Doug Wilson and other Presbyterians, Doug Wilson being a Presbyterian, um, pushed something called federal headship recently. And um, some of it I totally agree with, like Adam being our federal head and therefore his fall represented the whole fall of humanity and the whole fall of the world. Yeah, I mean, that's obvious. I, they, they pushed federal headship to mean that I, as a father, can essentially force save my family because I represent the family in that. And it was all, it's all for infant baptism. Like, why do you keep trying to shove in baptism? And I, I really don't get it that much, especially considering the historical circumstances are over that, that pushed infant baptism. But I digress. Um, they pushed federal headship saying that a sponsor, the father, could make the confession of faith for the son and God would honor it. What? <laughs> what? You can't. Every, every man is accountable for his own sin. I cannot save another man when I have sinned myself, right? Only Christ can save. So I can't be a stand-in for Christ for my son. Um, it can't be done. I am not Christ, right? Christ lives within me, all the rest, but I can't force Christ's hand to save my son or daughters or whatever else. And so not only is it not historical, it doesn't fit with any of the instructions about baptism from history or from um, the Bible, because there's just not that many, frankly, um, uh, but three, there's no reason for it. Like we know it doesn't save and Presbyterians should know that it doesn't actually save their children. Um, but they kind of somehow believe it does. They kind of somehow believe that if they do it right, they can say an incantation over their family that will, um, force God's hand, although they know that God is sovereign. I mean, I, I like Presbyterians. We get along on most everything, uh, but in this one, they like throw out reformed theology, essentially, um, thinking they're reformed because John Calvin believed this. And they say that, uh, they can steal their kids' baptisms and give it to them forcefully, force feed their baptisms. And uh, ironically, for a group that is so much about baptisms and how baptisms are necessary for you to enter the new covenant and how it symbolizes you're entering the new covenant and blah, 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 um, I don't consider any Presbyterians who aren't baptized as believers baptized. Like there are a bunch of unbaptized kids running around um, when they're baptized as infants and never rebaptized like they're, they're not actually legitimately baptized. They never made a confession of faith in baptism. And so, yeah, I mean, and do I get like super mad that they're not baptized? Not really, but <laughs> they should get baptized, right? Um, so again, ironic that the people who are so obsessed about baptism don't even end up getting their kids baptized, really. They let them go around unbaptized. They might quote from Acts, either Cornelius' household was baptized or the jailers after the jails open and he's about to kill himself mm -hmm. he repents and believes and then he says his whole household was baptized so wouldn't that include kids michael does it say i mean it said all the household believed and oh, were yeah. baptized so if the kids could believe i mean i believe kids that believe can be baptized but if they don't believe if they're just staring at the wall or drooling or whatever you know the newborns do they're not they're not consenting they're not believing they're just getting forced baptized you cannot um federally headship represent your family and force your kid to be baptized so then baptism didn't really um, didn't doesn't really do much doesn't wash away original sin as we have talked about doesn't cleanse any active sin mm -hmm. at the moment but presbyterians if i understand in many cases they would argue that it, it is or doug wilson specifically would say it is like circumcision 
Yes, they say that circumcision was the sign of the old covenant in that um, you were in the old covenant even if you weren't one of God's because plenty of people, or plenty of Jews who were circumcised weren't actually righteous, but they were still considered part of the old covenant, which is wrong. I, I, I really disagree with that, and that's why old covenant theology falls apart. But they say that the circumcision was the sign of the old covenant um, in that everybody in the old covenant had it. Again, I would disagree with that. I would say there's many that were not part of the old covenant that had it, but whatever. Um, and then the new covenant, the sign is baptism. And I would say yes, in that people in the new covenant are baptized. So it is a thing that describes people who are in the new covenant. Um, but just like the old covenant, not everybody in the new covenant, um, or not, not everybody who's baptized is in the new covenant, just like not everybody who's circumcised is in the old covenant. That's, that's where it falls apart. Well, yeah, from Romans. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they're his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Right. And so the promises of the old covenant apply to the faithful. And as soon as they're unfaithful or they prove themselves to be unfaithful or whatever else, they never were part, just like they're never, they never were part of the new covenant, even when they thought they were and then they leave. Um, as First John would tell you, they never were part of the old covenant even when they thought they were, and then they left, right? When they get the cursings of the old covenant, they're not actually in the old covenant. They are just, they're, they're ousted. They're, they're not in it. So yeah, there's, there's my two cents on why covenant theology is not a good theology. Again, it's like huge and people write gigantic treatises on covenant theology. And so they'll say that I'm not doing it justice. And I'm really not, because this is really an episode on covenant theology, but um, they will spend 50 billion hours trying to construct a world where covenant theology makes sense. It doesn't. It's just like a lot of theologies out there that you have to construct a huge meta-narrative to get it to work. Um, the scriptures are pretty sparse on baptism, period. And when you, when one of your lines, like one of the three that you can point to about baptism saving you is this one from 1 Peter 3 um, about being saved. And then it explicitly says that not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God in, in the sentence that says the baptism saves you, you know that your kids that you force baptized by removing the dirt from their bodies didn't pledge a clear conscience towards God. You did it for them. It's not real baptism for them. It's you pretending. So uh, do I feel strongly about it? Only in that people feel strongly about it. <laughs> but like, I do not separate covenant from people because of, or fellowship from people because of their beliefs on baptism like that. Um, even those who believe it has some weird regenerative properties like Lutherans or whatever, um, I don't really care because... I really care that you get um, the core of the gospel right, meaning you need a change of heart. So if anybody believes that you don't need a change of heart and can be saved purely via baptism, well, that's when I would disagree. Um, but all their other weird views of baptism, like I don't agree with clearly, but they don't make me break fellowship with them. Right, right. So I think we have tackled the most intellectual positions on uh, how baptism saves from either Roman Catholics. Poor Gottschalk agreed on so much yet fell flat on his face on this mm -hmm. baptism issue. John Calvin, Covenant Theology, fascinating. Ultimately, unless you have something else to add on there's, this. There's one kicker that every Baptist should have in their back pocket, or any Protestant for that matter, when Catholics or Lutherans or whoever are yelling at you that baptism saves, and they quote First Peter or whatever. You don't even have to go to First Peter if you don't want to, and you could, because it's pretty easy to disprove them from there. But um, you can ask them that if you need to get baptized to be saved, do women need to have kids to be saved? Oh. <laughs> because 1 Timothy 2.15 says that women, I'll just quote it directly, but women are saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So if you need to be baptized to be saved, women must also need to be childbearers to be saved, meaning Mary, 
Holy Mother of Jesus, our co-redemptrix or whatever the Catholics believe about her, wasn't saved because she didn't bear children. Um, she, she like booped Jesus out of her, right? According kept, to the Gnostics. Kept her virginity like does it even count? I don't even know. Um, or just barren women in general, I guess, wouldn't be saved even if, if they count the Jesus childbearing. Got it. Uh, yeah. So just a general one that clearly what... Um, First Timothy is saying is not that women are saved salvifically, you know, before the Lord through childbearing. They're saved in that they're edified. They're they're saved from being wasters of time and other things like that through childbearing. And it's also a general saying, like there are women who who go through struggles and are edified and all the rest without the childbearing part. So, um, needless to say, saved can mean a lot of things in different contexts. And so when it says that you're saved, baptism saves you. Doesn't mean that it saves you. Um, just like when First Timothy says that women are saved via childbearing, it doesn't mean that they are saved via childbearing. They're healed by childbearing. Yeah, I'm looking at, I mean, I've got a bunch of translations up at Blue Letter Bible, and they all say saved. I don't see ones that say, oh, preserved. One of them says preserved through childbearing. It has a wide semantic domain. Yeah. It was all in soterias in Greek. Ultimately, we shouldn't look to baptism or any other signs that really point to Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, as he said himself in John 8. What must I do to be saved? We have gone over it, repent and be baptized, but in John 8, he said, I told you, you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. I am he. What does that mean? He is Yahweh himself. I am, he is um, from Hebrew, Anahu, Anahua. Sorry, that's Arabic. Ani, who, it's in Hebrew. Just kidding. Too many languages are <laughs> At this point, it's just a sad mixture of things up there. Anyway, Jesus points to himself as the source of life from Zechariah. And he's writing into the city of Jerusalem. Look, your king comes, righteous, and brings salvation upon himself. At least that's how I translated from the Septuagint. Also to Nicodemus, after he chastises him for not understanding what do you mean about water, I must go inside my mother again? He says, no, you must, the son of man must be raised up like the serpent mm -hmm. in the desert. Jesus points to himself and himself only. It's God shall got right, but fell flat on his face on baptism. It is only the atonement and the the not the infusion, the transmission of the righteousness of Jesus, his sacrifice, his holiness, given to us through repentance and faith that ultimately will save you. Not baptizing babies, not um, the sacraments. They point to something greater than them, for sure, but they ultimately will not save you, like the thief in the cross. He repented, believed in Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, and in whom we have found our cause. Yeah. Thank you for listening. I've been Michael Mann behind the machine, and to my right, your left has been Sebastian, the bookkeeper. If you want to see the rest of our podcast episodes, you're going to have to go to youtube.com. It's it, it's not even slash found cause. I think there's other found cause. Anyways, I couldn't reserve slash found cause. It's like found cause 2659. So I don't know. Somehow look us up. We're on YouTube. We're also on facebook.com forward slash found cause. We did get that one. And we're on podbean.com. We're also on Spotify and iTunes and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, when we talk about something completely different. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.